Our instruction from the Lord this morning is from the book of Haggai. Have you cracked open Haggai in a while? Third book from the end of the Old Testament. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. And we're going to hear from the Lord through chapter 1 of the book of Haggai this morning. This is the very Word of God. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the king, the high priest, excuse me. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, it blew away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest with, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, 
in the second year of Darius the king. Amen. God Most High, we thank You that even the reading of this Word has power. And now we pray that You would open our ears and our hearts even more and that the preaching of this Word would be faithful unto You. We wish to see Jesus. So we take up a section of the Bible such as Haggai. It's important to be reminded of some of Israel's history that is playing out in the context in these pages. Uh, most of us probably know that throughout the history of the Hebrew people, they went through repeated patterns. Uh, blessing, and then disobedience, cursing even, and then repentance. And then ultimately back to fellowship with God, worshiping Him, obedience to Him. And if we're honest, we know this is mirrored in our own lives as, as we frequently rebel against God and, and He chastens us with consequences. Man, if we, if we truly belong to Him, we, we hear His Spirit's call to repentance, we, we humble ourselves once again before Him, and then we experience that flood of joy and comfort as our fellowship with Him is renewed. God is always faithful, but humanity is rarely faithful. God makes and keeps covenant promises. Humanity breaks covenant with God. That is why His covenant of grace is so extraordinary and precious. Now with regard to Old Testament history, uh, we don't need to go all the way back, but we should recall at least as far back as, as Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah was the instrument of an amazing amount of prophecy. 66 chapters. Now most often we as Christians, we, we focus in on his 53rd chapter and the remarkable precision with which Isaiah foretold the experience of the suffering Messiah far in advance. But Isaiah was most often the mouthpiece of warning against his own generation. He brought a powerful rebuke against idolatrous living. And he forewarned the people that destruction would befall Israel if they did not repent and change their ways. Well, after Isaiah came Jeremiah, and as Isaiah had issued the warning, it was Jeremiah who had the responsibility of informing Israel that because they did not listen to the Lord through Isaiah, the destruction that he foretold was now upon them. Israel was a divided kingdom in those days, the division itself a sign of their disunity and sin. And so the destruction came in, in a few different campaigns and phases with both the Assyrians from the north and the Babylonians from the southeast being the instruments of God to judge and punish his nation, his people. Now one of Jeremiah's most famous prophecies appears in chapter 25 of the book that bear his, bears his name where he wrote, Therefore thus saith the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. The prophecy of Israel's exile to Babylon. Now, because the sacking, the destruction and captivity came, came in waves, it's, it's somewhat difficult to pinpoint the exact 70 years that the Lord was, was talking about. 
For some of the people, the captivity and the exile, it came early, and, and for some it was extended. But, but many scholars count the dates between the total destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 B.C. and then the dedication of the second temple in 516 B.C. to be that literal 70 years. A useful timeline for this period and the fulfillment of the prophecy through Jeremiah. So for perhaps some of us who it's been a while since we took Bible survey in school or, or maybe we haven't ever surveyed the Bible according to its chronology, I hope it's helpful to think about the time period here that we're reading. Mid-500s B.C. Um, the time five or six hundred years before Christ came to earth. And so hopefully that prepares us to understand this time which... Uh, the, the prophet Haggai specifically denotes in the text and what he's speaking into, the events that he's speaking into. Uh, though there are some questions, as I said, about some of the exact dates in this period of Israel's history, Haggai is the helpful exception. We, we started the book uh, right there. His record, he not only notes the year, he notes the month, and even the very day. Imagine that monumental day that a prophet had his ears open to hear the Lord. He received God's word. Now, pretty much all that we know about Haggai is a period of his life that lasted about four months. Haggai existed in relative obscurity. Now, clearly he, he was a righteous Israelite. Uh, what do I mean by that? How was an Israelite counted righteous? By faith. The people of Israel and the Old Covenant were saved in the same way that we are. They did not know specifically of Christ, but they knew the promise that God would redeem. And so they believed by faith that God would solve the problem of the divide of sin between God and man. So when I say that, that Haggai was a righteous man, I'm saying he was a Christian. He was believing in the redemption that was going to come through the promised Messiah. Even while he was in captivity, while he was in exile, and yet he was a man raised up for such a time as this, this four-month period documented in the book that bears his name. Just a brief moment in redemptive history. And he preached four recorded sermons, two of which we just heard and we will look at this morning. And these have been handed down to us as part of God's holy and inerrant word. And though we have uh, much information to fill in this history from Nehemiah, Ezra, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel about this time, we only have this little snippet from Haggai's perspective. But it is a remarkable teaching about the only covenant-keeping God and his call to faith, his call to repentance, obedience, worship, and the, the revealing of his marvelous covenant of grace once more of course, was ultimately guaranteed in his son, in that promised Messiah, for the complete remission of the sins of the people of faith, and eternal life even, granted to all who hoped for or would believe in the coming Christ. Now, if we consider some of the known facts and dates, uh, such as in the book of Ezra, we know that, that Babylon was conquered by Cyrus the Persian, and that it was he, it was Cyrus who declared the Hebrew captives free to go back free to return to Jerusalem, and he even stipulated to rebuild the temple. That was in 538 B.C. We know that from Ezra. However, when Haggai dates his prophecy, it's now 520 B.C. 
It's 18, almost 19 years since Cyrus made his decree to go back to the land and rebuild the temple. And precious little has been done toward rebuilding the house of the Lord. So that brings us to the title of this message. Tell God he can wait. Well, that seems strange, almost somewhat borderline blasphemous to say, but that was exactly what the recently freed residents of Jerusalem had said to the Lord, and the Lord heard them loud and clear. The very first part of Haggai's very first sermon is the declaration of what God has heard the people saying, verbatim. The Lord Almighty says, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. This is an astonishing thing that the people of Judah have said. Though they were commanded to build the temple 18 years before, they discern in their own hearts and their own wisdom, apart from God's command, that the timing just isn't right for them. They decide that they are not yet ready to undertake this offering and effort. So they boldly and brashly tell God that he is going to have to wait. And then the word of the Lord comes through Haggai. And he brings a powerful rebuke reminding the people just exactly what they have been making their priority. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Well, this is a very interesting choice of words that the Lord uses because just in that little architectural and interior design clue, the people of Judah are convicted. See, there's a history of beautifully paneled cedar houses in the biblical narrative. But they're very exceptional. The first one was built by King David after he established Jerusalem as the capital. He built a type of palace that had never before been seen in that part of the world. A house built from cedar beams, boards, and panels. Now, David we know, was a man after God's own heart. And once he moved into that great palace, he was immediately convicted about the opulence of his house once he moved in. Second Samuel 7, he, he said to his friend, Nathan the prophet, here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. And so here was the dawn of the temple age. Up until David's day, the ark, the, the physical presence of God lived in a tent. That place where God would dwell amongst his people, the Israelites. It was kept in the tabernacle that God had prescribed to Moses. But it was up in the lap of luxury, the paneled house, living there that convicted David that he had been prioritizing his own honor and his own comfort, and the very architecture stole the awe of the people away from God's tabernacle. The tent was old news. David's house was all the rage. Now you remember that the Lord spoke to David through Nathan the prophet and told him that it would not be him who was going to build the temple. Now David was... a. a, a an incredible man. The Lord declared that his hands were soiled from the blood of warfare. He would not be the one to build it. It would be his son. 
It would be Solomon who would ultimately build the temple. And eventually it was established. And, and it was a wonder of the world for its beauty, its adornment, and its architecture. A site that people came from around the world to come and gaze upon. When the Lord here notes that the people of Judah had paneled houses, He's convicting them of their luxurious priorities, their selfishness. Cedarwood was not readily available in Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits on a dry, arid plateau. The cedars grow in northwestern Israel, in the Lebanese mountains above the coastal cities of Tyre and Sidon. And then in the next range, inland, the flanks of Mount Hermon. Now there was... There was wood in Galilee, there was wood in Nazareth, for we know our Lord was raised to be a carpenter by trade. But there was no wood such as cedar paneling, suitable for building, to be found in the south of Israel. It had to be logged, it had to be milled, it had to be hauled all the way down south, and then it had to go all the way up the steep trail to the Jerusalem plateau. It was expensive. It was burdensome for the wagoners who did the hauling. But ever since David built his cedar palace and it was constructed and it became the awesome thing and the talk of the town, well then, cedar paneling was all the rage as a symbol of wealth. Now, not only was the wood extravagant, but in the 18 years since the decree to build the temple, early efforts had been undertaken to begin. Again, we can read about it through Ezra. Some commentators have even speculated that the wood originally bought, procured, produced, and shipped to Jerusalem for the rebuilding of the temple had been reappropriated by individuals for the booming housing market. That the very wood that was set aside as an offering to the Lord had been used for selfish market purposes instead. So into this, Haggai is preaching. He continues. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Now this is biblical preaching. This is a call for self-examination. A call to repentance. And the word of the Lord just keeps it coming. You have planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a bag with holes in it. Now this describes their attitudes even further. It's not that they were going without. It's not that they were poor. But rather that no matter how much they had, it wasn't enough. Now, the person of faith, like David, David when he was destitute and on the run from Saul, when, when David was in poverty, under the influence of the Spirit, he says in his 23rd Psalm, my cup runneth over. But the unspiritual person, the one devoted to their own paneled house, has not a full cup, but rather a purse with holes. No matter how much is earned, it all gets spent. And nothing is left for the Lord. The Lord says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin. 
while each of you is busy with your own house. When the people brashly told the Lord that it wasn't time to build for Him, He just caused them to hemorrhage the cash that they had. He just blew it away to nothing. He took all of their possessions and subjected them to depreciation and inflation so that they were just spinning their wheels in an exhausting rat race. He refused to bless the labors of their hands because they had been so stingy toward him. And finally, he reiterates his command, Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. The command is, is to devote energy not only to personal comfort and pleasure, but to devote sufficient energy to that which pleases and honors the Lord Jehovah of hosts. Here is the command. That your efforts please the Lord. Well, the last part of the passage is an incredible encouragement to a preacher. Uh, preachers stand before the congregation week in and week out, and we are painfully aware of our own sins, our flaws, and our shortcomings. Satan is constantly making us wonder if our efforts are, are more what uh, Chris Christopherson called a walking contradiction. Partly truth and mostly fiction. But this particular sermon that Haggai preached, that this obscure preacher preached, it fell on ears that were dug open by the Lord. Because the passage says, the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Spirit-filled preaching that accomplished its purpose. Well, a month passed and Haggai preached his second sermon. And it was a short one. Probably was a hot day. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. I am with you. I am with you, declares the Lord. That great covenant promise of God was Haggai's second sermon. And I'm telling you, that little sermon, well, that's a gospel sermon. It's a foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the Almighty God, Jehovah, has always desired to be with His people. And He came alongside the human race when He sent His Son, who is called Emmanuel, God with us, this, brothers and sisters, was what the tabernacle, what the temple was all about. A place where God would condescend Himself and actually dwell among the people and minister His law and His grace to them. But the people of Judah had turned their backs on that glorious grace for the sake of their own comfort. The temple was a meeting place, yes. But hear this, it's also a metaphor. This is our application. The temple is a metaphor. The Lord has never been so much interested in building projects as He has been in 
especially to grateful people who received by faith. It was in the temple that the sacrifices were offered. The substitutionary blood sacrifices that, that only partially atoned for sin. But even in those sacrifices and the altar in the temple, the furniture, there was a preaching going on. There was a preaching of the gospel. There were emblems of Christ. We have the blessed hindsight to see them now. Now back then they couldn't get too close. They couldn't go into the holiest of holies. They couldn't touch the ark. They had to just keep going through the motions year after year, offering sacrifices. And then after two generations in Babylon, and, and now back at home, they didn't even realize the seriousness of time devoted to God's presence. His covenant. His, his sacrificial system which mediated His grace. They told God that His presence and His grace could wait. Now I hope we all know the full gospel. I hope we know that according with the Scriptures, God came to earth in the flesh lived a holy life, and died as a righteous innocent, fulfilling the sacrificial system, and was raised by the power of God for the forgiveness of sin and reconciliation. The full gospel, the full counsel of God. I hope that we know that from His holy word. And know that, that all the sacrifices which partially atoned, all of the ceremonies that are outlined in those long sections of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God's law, all of those were fulfilled in the final blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And that Emmanuel, God with us, has now sent His Holy Spirit to live within every elect man and woman, boy and girl, who has received the gift of faith and repentance. And that the thick veil in the temple was torn in two on that dark day. But Jesus' final atoning sacrifice satisfied that hot wrath of God. And he raised him from it. And so the full counsel of God is now, our bodies are called temples of the Holy Spirit. His presence with us. And that's not difficult to apply to our lives. But we do need to consider our ways. What are the spiritual paneled houses in our lives? We know that some of the biggest, fanciest houses in this county mask the shortcomings of covenant people. Pretty common in, in the Dutch culture anyway to put up a facade. They invented that form of architecture. We peel off the panels of the things that we're devoted to. We truly consider our ways. What would we see? What's behind the panels? Is it a TV or an internet connection that's just on all day? Is there never a book, let alone the good book, being opened? Images coming before our eyes that are trash. And all of the other things that we indulge in in our life or comfort, our alcohol, or the polar opposites of gluttony and anorexia. Children that are experimenting with every known sin. Right here in our community, we know it. Is it wealth 
Is it just the wealth itself? Did you know that a three-quarter ton pickup now costs $100,000? And it's going to depreciate 90% in seven years. So what is it? What do we want? We want the dream house. We want the acreage. We want our kids to appear perfect at sports. Are we, are we doing just constant activities that are running us ragged? Behind the panels? And the more we work and the more we buy, the more we do, the more we indulge, all we seem to be holding is a bag full of holes. While the Lord's temple, the metaphor here, metaphor for His ministry of grace, His temple, the ministry of grace, in us, is a neglected ruin? Is it going to take a drought on the fields and mountains on all the labors of our hands to get our attention? Or will it be the word of the Lord through an obscure messenger that the Lord has sent? Haggai. The Lord is speaking today still through Haggai that we would believe. That we would believe His free offer of grace. And out of that, He will compel an obedience and a fear and reverence. And so, if this word is, is, is pricking your heart today, then to you, the Lord declares, I am with you. I am with you. I am with you. And when that happens, I'll, I'll just let our text tell you the next thing that happens. Verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Joshua, son of the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God. The whole remnant, the whole body, the church, God stirred up by His Spirit in their spirit, and they devoted themselves to His ministry of grace, His presence. Now, it's not about building projects. It's about His ministry of grace to us. And so, what if all of us at the chapel, all of us at Friend of Sinners, were stirred up to build? What would that look like? Would it look like us bringing the full tithe into the storehouse, as the Lord called for through Malachi? Would it look like something more practical that there be more than five saints at that monthly prayer meeting on Wednesday morning? Just putting it out there. An additional service of singing during the week. Meeting together. Celebrating and pondering the ministry of grace. Encouraging each other. Would it be that, that we all came back on Sunday nights? Would it be that our kids were genuinely trained in the faith? Our kids, grandkids, for the ministry of grace to one another. 
ministry of music, ministry of mercy. If we considered our ways, if we considered our own houses, and, and it can be more personal than, than that, about the presence of God, which, we, which is found when we read and pray and sing His Word, even in our closet. What would that look like if we built in that way? What kind of glorious temple construction is that? We don't want to tell God He can wait on that. But we began our worship today with Psalm 132 with David saying, and we sung it, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord. And then he prayed, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. Beloved, we are the priesthood of all believers. And this is our noble calling. We here on earth. A holy habitation for the Lord in us. We've learned it from Peter. We are being built up as living stones into a spiritual house. And so is the Lord stirring up your spirit like He did for Zerubbabel and Joshua and for the whole remnant. We needn't ask Him to wait. We have only to respond to His call. To believe. To build up His ministry first in our own hearts and lives. A regular refreshing of His grace which comes from His presence which is His Word. And worship. And then it flows out of us. And we come together corporately. And our efforts together become eternal efforts until His church is built and the earth is filled with His glory.